No, it's awesome to open up the Word of God with you today, and to, the privilege of, of opening God's Word is, is really um, it's beyond explanation. It's the Word of God. We're going to look at the Word of God. I'm going to read a big passage today. I usually have you stand. If you want to sit, that's okay. It's 35 verses. It's not the end of the world. It's not a huge amount, but it is a lot, okay? So we're going to read Acts 15, verses 1 through 35, and we're going to see basically a huge epic fight in the church and how it was resolved. So if you can, please stand with me, and I'm going to read these verses. Acts 15, beginning at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came down to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has re- related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that had fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. 
If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken truth that we need. Lord, we need this passage of scripture in our lives today. And you know how you will apply it to us. So we pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would you would apply it into our lives. You would sink it deep into our hearts, Lord, that we would not be neglectful of, any, of anything that you would have us pay attention to. Lord, do the work that only you can do in our hearts. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. That air conditioning is going to be kicking in any minute. It reminds me, I know that Muhammad Ali just died, and um, I grew up watching a lot of his fights as a kid, and I, I remember the, uh, the rumble in the jungle, and I remember, I watched some clips the other day, and I remember how they said it was like 100 degrees, you know, when they were fighting, so it's not that in here, so it's all good, right? Whew. All right. Nobody likes to be in a fight, but everybody likes to watch one. When I was in, a kid in elementary school, if there was a fight, everyone would come running, and they'd all want to know, what are they fighting about? Well, who's fighting, what are they fighting about, and who's going to win? And, and the reasons were always like dumb reasons. You know, you looked at me wrong, you said something about my sister, some weird idea, or maybe I just don't like you, and they would, they would say, we're going to fight after school, and we'd all go kind of watch the fight, and, but no one wants to actually be in it. Now, I was in a couple fights growing up, uh, got beat up, uh, that's all I'll say about that. Who was fighting, why were they fighting, who won? Reasons often silly, but there are worse fights to be in, and, and, and I want to zero in today on, on the fight that we see in Scripture here. It's a fight for the gospel truth. It's a fight that's an attack against the gospel. That's what was going on. Now, we live in very contentious times. We don't have to remind ourselves about that. We know that we're living in times that are very contentious, and people start all sorts of fights for all sorts of reasons, but I think it's good to remember it's the same kind of world that they were living in in the first century. They were living in a very pluralistic society. A lot of false gods, false teaching would come into the church. And so this, this fight that happens is for the gospel truth. People are coming in and they're saying, you can't be saved unless you do this, this, and this. Really, you can't be saved unless you become a Jew first. And that was contrary to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and so this is the fight we're going to see. And I think as we live in such a time where there are contentious fights, where the truth is being undermined, and there's a lot of one-sided debates where if you wade in on it, you are seen to be hateful or close-minded or even called crazy. And people will hatefully discredit you if you disagree with them. That if you stand up for truth, you're kind of having to count the cost first, but that's kind of what Jesus said. Now here's what's happening, and it happened back then, it's happening today. People are claiming lies are truth, and truth is lies. 
Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's what's going on. And God says, woe to them. Now as believers, if you're a believer, you're called to love everybody and preach the gospel. A lot of times though we say, well I want to love everybody, but I'm really having a hard time getting to the gospel. The gospel that we get to share is where we get to tell people how they can be freed from Satan and sin and be freed by Jesus to serve his purposes. So we're giving them good news. That's what gospel means, good news. How they can have freedom in Christ instead of bondage to Satan. How they can be set free by Jesus to serve his purposes. But when we give that message, a lot of people will reject it outright and call it absurd. They'll fight against it. And there are these one-sided attacks on truth. The good thing is when we looked at this passage here, it's not a one-sided attack. It's an attack that is countered. I just want us to think for just a moment, though, about some of the things going on in our society today, and even in our own hearts, and how sometimes it is just a one-sided thing. Think about sin that you're struggling with in your own life. A lot of times we kind of just succumb to it and go along with it. We read, hey, in the Bible, this is what it says. Well, I probably shouldn't do that then. In the power of the Holy Spirit, I I will keep away from that. I will fight with myself every day if necessary. Well, a lot of times we just kind of cave in and we give in and we we know how weak we are. That's why we get those reminders that God is strong. We are weak. We've got to trust in his strength. We've got to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we are all battling sin in our own lives, but we are also battling sin in the world. And it's, it's, it's a hot topic, but a lot of Christians don't want to touch it, but this transgender confusion issue that's going on. I don't see a lot of Christians speaking into it. I think none of us want to touch it because we know what's going to happen once we do. Men are parading around as women. I am Kate. I am Jazz. These are men. Uh, we've got parents injecting their kids with, with things that will block them from going into puberty, and mostly out of fear. Out of lies they've been told. And our hearts should go out to people who have been told lies and who have been deceived. It's a fight for truth. If you don't think it is, you've got you to think through for a moment. This is a fight for gospel truth. People are either going to be saying, Jesus is the only way to be saved and I've got to put all my trust in him. Or, I can be my own God. There is no God except for me. I'm the determiner of everything that happens. And that's just the way it is. Two diametrically opposed worldviews are going on. The gospel truth says God is the source of all good. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Pagan lies says you determine all of it. There are many ways to self-fulfillment, pagan lies will tell you. There is no God in the picture. So when you come to Acts 15, and you see what's going on, don't think that it was just this clean thing where it's like, okay, well, someone had an error in the church. They, got, they, they just told them they were wrong immediately. No, these were people that came in that were unbelievers and were troubling the church, and they wouldn't stop, which is why the whole church had to get together, why they had to send from Antioch, send them to Jerusalem and have a council, have a big council about it. In Acts 15, we get a ringside seat to an epic fight in the church. Again, I mentioned Muhammad Ali earlier, but you know, there was the rumble in the jungle, right? There was the thriller in Manila. You know what this was? This was the cold cock in Antioch. Just like, koosh. I'm serious, a forearm shiver. I mean, they basically just, 
basically what they did is they said, look, this is the way it is. You can't be a Christian unless you become a Jew, and that's just the way it is, and they were insisting upon it. Well, here's what the apostles did. They didn't pretend like it didn't exist. They contended, just like Jude says, contended earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. And, and this is what, we, what we're going to learn here is how do you deal with dissension in a God-honoring way? There was the dissension that went on. They had a discussion about it. They made a decision. They delivered their decision, and the church rejoiced because they stood for the truth. Now, the big idea of this passage is that Christians united for gospel truth honor God. That is a simple idea of this passage. When Christians unite for gospel truth, it honors God. And it's, they don't do it alone. They, they unite with other Christians. This is what you see. This passage is, they, they, Paul and Barnabas go get reinforcements. They, they, they didn't settle it right there in Antioch. They had to go to Jerusalem to take care of it. And they, they united around gospel truth. And therefore, they were pleasing to God. And God brought out a good outcome. Isn't there so much temptation to cave in to the pressure to go along with unbiblical ideas? Now look, we are, we are, and let's just bring it to where we live, we are bombarded with false teaching. Every way you turn, people saying that Jesus isn't who he says he is, saying there is no heaven or hell, saying that you are the determiner of your destiny, basically that you are God. People saying that wrong is right and right is wrong. You have to fight for the truth. Now here, there were two doctrinal issues going on in Acts chapter 15, and it wasn't just that these unbelievers were coming and saying, you have to become a Jew to become a Christian. There was something else. So the first doctrinal error was that unbelievers had infiltrated the church and were teaching salvation by works, you know, rather than salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. But there was a second issue. You see it in verse 5. There were believers that were also deceived. Believers from pharisaical background, were teaching not that the law was necessary to be saved. They would say, no, 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 Jesus saves us. But what they were saying is that the law was necessary to grow in Christ, to be pleasing to God. So they basically tack it on as essential for your Christian life. And that was wrong as well. They missed the point that believers are free in Christ who fulfilled the law. So you've got confusion here about a, a hugely foundational doctrine. It's salvation by faith alone. So this required bold, immediate action. They got on this right away. They didn't say, you know, in a couple months, we're going to deal with this. We'll put it on the agenda, and we'll look at it later. We've got a lot of other things to talk about. No, they put everything on hold. This is where you put your life on hold and say, okay, call time out to everything. We're going to deal with this. Now, you look throughout history, you look throughout the history of the church. You can identify, historians have identified no less than 22 ecumenical councils where the church got together because heresy had snuck into the church, had crept in, sometimes unnoticed, had taken over, and they needed to fix the issue. They needed to correct the error. The two most notable ecumenical councils were of Nicaea in AD 325, where they affirmed the full deity of Christ. 
that Jesus is 100% God because there was an, a, a heresy going into the church that was saying he isn't. And also in AD 451, the Council of Chalcedon, they affirmed the full humanity of Christ because a heresy had come in and said Jesus really wasn't a man either. And we know the Bible teaches very clearly he is fully God and fully man. So the councils in church were affirming truth that already existed in the word of God, but heresies had come in and clouded and confused the church. It can happen today. There's a lot of churches today that are clouded and confused by heresy. Now the biggest question, this is the most important council of all, this Jerusalem council, and this is big. If you look in the book of Acts, Luke put it in here. The Holy Spirit had Luke put it in here because it's so important. It's so important. And the the question that they're asking is, how is a person saved? And there was a lot of debate about it, and this is this fight going on, and the apostles fight it and successfully refute the error. They reject the efforts to impose legalism and ritualism as necessary for salvation. And they affirm that salvation is totally by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So let's jump into this and let's see what we see here. You see how to deal with dissension in a God-honoring way, but also what we're going to see is six proofs for the the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. So we're going to see that in the discussion that they have. The, the breaks down like this. The passage goes like this. The dissension, verses 1 through 5. The discussion that takes place, verses 6 through 18. Then a decision is made, verses 19 through 29. And then they deliver the message back to the church. That's verses 30 to 35. So let's start at verse 1 with the dissension that occurs. There are unbelievers who come from Judea, and they come a long way. They're coming 300 miles. This is how much they hated the gospel. They came 300 miles to teach error in a time when it was hard to to go 300 miles. And and they teach salvation by works. Now, some of you are like, um, I've struggled with this my whole life. A lot of Christians struggle with, I know that I'm told that I need to believe that Jesus died for my sins. I need to place all my faith in him for my salvation. But I still feel like I have to do something to make myself acceptable to God. That's a confusion that you've got. Now, the idea is, because Jesus saved me, I want to please him with my life. And it's not going to give me any better standing with God. It's not going to make me more pleasing to him. It's not going to force him to accept me. He's already accepted me by grace through faith in Christ. Apart from any work, any effort on my part. And this is really hard for us, isn't it? It's very hard for us to to understand. It's okay to say, yeah, this is hard for us to understand. I mean, well, we've got to be honest with each other as the church. This is not an easy question, and we do struggle with this. Well, this is what they were struggling with, and they've got heretics, guardians of legalism, self-imposed false teachers, and they're, they're the accursed ones Galatians chapter 1 talks about. If anyone brings a different gospel, which is really not good news, but bad news, let him be accursed. They're bringing a different gospel. They're bringing not gospel, which means good news, but they're bringing bad news. And so there's a huge debate. Verse 2 tells us a huge dissension and debate. And Paul and Barnabas, I love it, they're going toe-to-toe with the false teachers. They are duking it out, a flurry. 
They're just a flurry of punches, and, and they're bobbing and weaving. They're fighting furiously for the truth. They're contending earnestly for the faith, and they called it like it is. What they didn't do, which many of us would be tempted to do, is say, maybe it'll go away on its own. Maybe it will just kind of disappear on its own. Maybe it'll correct itself. No, they didn't ignore it. They didn't let it fester. They didn't pretend it didn't exist. They faced it head on. So they go, and they're chosen to go to Jerusalem to consult with other leaders. And verse 3 says, as they go, I love this, as they're going to Jerusalem, they go through Phoenicia, and they go through Samaria, and guess what they're telling everyone? How the Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. It's like they're saying, you know, these false teachers are so wrong, and truth is going to prevail. So they get to Jerusalem, and they tell everyone what God has done through them, and they give all these details about the works of God and what he did. They're verifying the salvation of the Gentiles and how the Gentiles didn't need to become Jews first. But then the other problem arises. Verse 5. Some believers now jump into the fray and they say, it is necessary, though, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what they're saying is, you don't need to do this to be saved, but... You really do need to do this. Kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouths. They're saying to be healthy Christians, you need to be circumcised as a Jew and keep the law of Moses like a Jew. So they're trying to tell Gentiles that they need to become Jews. This is the problem. Big problem. But here's what Paul and Barnabas did. They called heresy what it was. They called out the lies. And I'm sure they did it lovingly, but I'm sure they did it firmly. They didn't pretend like it didn't exist. When we moved into our house, we've been in our house about four and a half years or so, and uh, right away we, we realized something that the home inspector didn't catch. There was mold in, in the kitchen wall. Now what I didn't do is say, hmm, maybe it'll go away on its own. Maybe this you know, infection in the wall will just heal itself. No, what I, what I did is I, I ripped out the drywall there that was all messed up. I, I wore a mask, and, and I put new drywall up. I needed to do that so it wouldn't get worse. I had to deal with it. Just recently, just this week, a lady comes up to me. Angela and I are, are out at a park somewhere, and a lady comes up to me, and she says, can I share some things with you? And she's got like a folder, and she's going to hand me something. I said, well, do you work here? This is kind of a place you can take tours at and stuff. I said, do you work here? No, I just want to share some things. I said, you're a Jehovah's Witness. She's like, how would you know? I said, I've talked to a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and the time was short. We needed to go on our way. And so I, told, I said, look, no offense, but you are believing lies from Satan, not from the Bible. The Bible you have. I said, I'm sure you're a, a really great person and stuff like this, but I, I, I have to tell you the truth. You're, I don't want you to go to hell. And, and she says, well, there is no hell. I'm like, you have got to, you've got to listen Think about this. She goes, well, I was a Christian before. I'm like, okay, you have a different gospel. You don't have good news. You have bad news. You're not believing the truth. Well, wouldn't that be the most loving thing to say to someone? What if she walked out of there, got hit by a Mack truck, and died? And I hadn't told her the gospel. Now, I'm not thinking she's believing right now. But I hope that she's actually thinking about it. Like, wow, someone actually told me that I was wrong. I wasn't trying to be hateful. I, I was actually trying to be loving and say, you know, this is the truth. 
It's not what I made up. It's something God gave us. You gotta tell it like it is because when Christians unite for the gospel truth, God's pleased. When Christians give the truth, now you're not supposed to go up and like, now you're gonna say I did, but not club people over the head with it. Now, now, seriously, believe me, I wasn't yelling, I wasn't screaming, I wasn't giving dirty looks. I was, I was literally saying, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. Because when the gospel is being twisted, that's when Christians need to unite for the gospel truth. In fact, when, when persecution's coming at Christians, when the gospel's being twisted, that's when the church has historically united. When trouble comes. This is the kind of life, this is the kind of time we live in. Cults are abounding, perpetrating lies. Unbelievers are saying that right is wrong and wrong is right. So they've got to call it out for what it is. We've got to do that. Now let's move on to verses 6 through 18, the, the discussion they have. There's a discussion, and the apostles and the elders, they come together to discuss the matter, to deliberate, to, to figure it out, verse 6. And, and the council it's called a council. It's not really called a council in the Bible. It's called a council on the heading in your Bible. But it's a group of people that were decision makers in the church, and they made a decision, but they came together to do it. And they, you'll notice that they were very united in what they, what they decided on, but the process was a real struggle. There was a lot of debate it, even, it tells us that. There was, verse 7, there's a lot of debate. Now, I want to give you the six proofs that they're giving here for salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I hope, you know, if you're, if you're taking notes and you write this down, you're going to talk about this in your home groups this week, I hope that you say, okay, I see each one of these things in my life as a Christian. If you're a Christian, I hope you say, okay, yeah, there's a proof. That's, that's going to assure me of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not work I have to do, okay? So six proofs of salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Number one, we see it in verse seven, it's proven by the gospel's effects upon a life that we're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now they debate it, verse seven, they debate it, they're wrestling with it, Peter then gives a speech. They all debate for a while, they all wrestle with it, and then Peter stands up and gives a speech. Now it's the first of three speeches in this group, okay? And he tells how, in the early days of the church, God had chosen him to preach to the Gentiles, and now Gentiles, non-Jews, had come to faith in Christ without becoming Jews. They came to Christ, and here's what he said, that they would hear the gospel and believe. That's what they did. They heard the gospel and believed. Just like when you came to faith in Christ. If you've come to faith in Christ, it's because you heard the gospel and believed. You didn't have to do some other thing. That God did not require additional qualifications. That's the first thing. It's proven by the gospel's effects. Number two, and we see this in verses eight and nine, it's proven by the Spirit's work, what the Spirit did. God, verse eight, God who knows the heart knows, he knows who belongs to him, he knows who's really saved. He bore witness to these new believers, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did these Jewish believers. And now the Judaizers would say, now, P now Peter, when, when you went to Cornelius' house, and you preach the gospel, they didn't really get saved because they didn't become Jews first. And Peter's like, no, actually, they got the Holy Spirit. That proves their salvation is real. Romans 8 tells us, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 9, he says, they made no distinction. God made no distinction. He didn't require them to become Jews. Now, a third thing he points out in verse 9, the end of verse 9, is that 
Salvation by grace alone is also proven by God's forgiveness in a person's life. Now, a lot of people struggle with that, like, am I really forgiven or not? Well, the Bible says, if you're in Christ, you are forgiven, and you need to bank on that, not on your own feelings about it, but on the fact that you really are forgiven by Christ. So verse 9, he says he cleansed their hearts by faith. He didn't cleanse their hearts by, by circumcision or by becoming a Jew. He cleansed their hearts by faith, just like your heart got cleansed by faith when you first believed. Salvation by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, not a result of works. You can't boast in your works because those purified from sins, those cleansed, are saved by God's grace. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That, you can just take that to the bank. You can say, if I'm wondering, if I'm really forgiven, you've come to faith in Christ, you've, you've placed your faith in him and what he did at the cross for your, your sins, and his work is finished, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead, and he's promised to return. You, you've got to believe, I am forgiven based on what God says in his word. Number four, it's also proven by the law's inability to save. Verse 10, they say, why did you put God to the test? You're putting a yoke around their necks. And you're describing the legalism of scribes and Pharisees. And, and, he, and they say in verse 11, we believe we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's how we're saved. That's the gospel truth. It's not from the law. Think about it. Before you became a Christian, you probably tried everything you could to make yourself right with God, and you realized it didn't work. And then you threw yourself on God's mercy and you said, only through Jesus. I believe it. It's only through Jesus. It's not my good works. It's not my good efforts. It's not my trying to be really, really good. It's because Jesus is good. It's because he died for my sins. When I w- while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, the law has an inability to save. You can't save yourself. Number five, verse 12. It's proven by God's miracles. The miraculous things he does when he, when he saves a person and he transforms them by grace. See, what happens is Barnabas and Paul stand up next. They give the second speech. And the assembly is speechless as they're listening to this speech because they're telling what God did through them at this freshly finished journey amongst Gentiles where they're becoming Christians and God has done miracles and wonders, miraculous things that only God can do to give credence to the gospel message. Let's move on to the sixth thing. It's also proven by God's promises. Now, verses 13 through 18 tells us that. James stands up next and gives a third speech in defense of salvation by faith alone, and he shows that God's promises in his word is the basis of of the fact that, yeah, the Gentiles are saved when they come to faith in Christ. God's present work amongst Gentiles is true, and he says, now listen up. Verse 14, he starts quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. He says, here's what God said. The prophets agree with this. I will return, rebuild David's tent, rebuild the ruins, restore it. The remnant will seek the Lord. All the Gentiles called by my name. You notice there's no mention of becoming a Jew there. Gentile salvation, they're proving it, is not contrary to God's plan. God's messengers are announcing salvation to Gentiles, as God has promised, he would take people from every nation and tribe and language for himself, and no mention of all becoming Jews in order to have that happen. So what you see is salvation by grace, not works, proven by the gospel's effects in your life. I hope you see this in your life, proven by the Spirit's work in your life, that the Holy Spirit 
bears witness with your spirit that you really are a child of God, that you have God's forgiveness, that you have assurance of his forgiveness because of the word of God, that the law is, is unable to do that. You can't do this on your own, and God has miraculously saved you, and his promises are true in his word. And, and what they did is they fought lies with truth. Every one of these things are, are truths from the word of God, and they fought the lies that way. You don't want to fight lies with lies. I mean, you wouldn't, I'm guessing you wouldn't fight a gas fire with more gas. What they say here is God knows the heart. He knows who's saved. You have to just give the truth, and you've got to speak it. Kids, if you're in school, and your teacher says to you, black is white and white is black, you're going to be sitting there thinking, no, it's not. And hope maybe you just stand, you know, raise your hand and respectfully say, actually, white is white and black is black. It's kind of obvious. You wonder, what's the, what's the enemy to this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone today? What is the enemy that, that, that keeps people from believing that? Sometimes it's people's own minds. I think a lot of Christians, in their own minds, they're not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. They're not, they're not saying, We're gonna come up, I'm going to come up with my beliefs from the word of God. I feel this way, so therefore this must be true. And you've got, to, you've got to know that your own mind is going to play tricks on you and, and you need to take every thought captive. And I also think that false teaching, subtle false teaching, like if someone outright just says, there's another way to be saved than Jesus, you're going to refute that and say, that's not true. But what about people that just kind of slip in amongst biblical truth some error? There's a lot of that being perpetuated in a lot of churches you realize that the church, the church was dealing with this error in the church. I think another thing that happens with Christians is loneliness. There's a lot of Christians that are lonely. They don't feel like they have any friends. They come to church on Sunday, but then they leave. They don't have a small group of any kind. They don't have people speaking into their life. And we're to, on an ongoing basis, be around other Christians united for the gospel. This is not, oh, if there's a big problem, we need to get together. No, they're going, they're together, they're, co- they're committed together to life in Christ all the time. So when there's a problem, you come together too, but not the only time. So that's why we have small groups and home groups and Bible classes and people get together one-on-one and people, Christians spend time with each other to encourage each other in the faith. If you don't have that, you need it. They were fighting for truth in the church. Now, I don't get very political sometimes, but when politicians try to get biblical, then I got to get political. When someone defines what a Christian is, and it happens in the political arena a lot, when they start defining what a Christian is falsely, Christians have got to say, whoa, whoa, not true. Um, And by the way, it's not just President Obama, it's Trump, it's Clinton. Uh, Those are the names. And they're misusing the Bible to justify lies. Just this week, our president used the Bible to justify transgender bathrooms. He quoted Bible verses. And he said, the golden rule, you know, says to love everyone, so you should have, go to the bathroom, men and women, at the same time in the same room. They're using the Bible to justify lies. Christians need to speak up to that because other people are going to say, oh, so that's what Christians believe. 
not true. All right, let's move on to the decision. And they make a decision. Verses 19 through 29, and it's real simple. They say, we're going to write a letter. This is what they, today we would, we're going to, you know, we'll call them up or we'll FaceTime them. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll send them an email, but they had, had to write a letter. And they said, we're going to write the letter. We're going to send it with Barnabas and Paul back to Antioch, and we're going to send two of our own with them who are, are leaders in the church to back that up in, in, in person. So this is how important this question was. This is how crucial this was. But here's what they did. They said, we're going to make it really clear. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. But we're going to ask these Christians to to stay away from sin and to curb their liberty so as not to cause Jews to stumble. And so here's what they said. Verse 19, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that word trouble means to throw something in in someone's way to really annoy them. So they hear the evidence and they say, no, keeping the law and becoming a Jew and having rituals to make you right with God is not requirement for salvation. The heretics should cease and desist right now from teaching these things. Don't quit quit annoying the Gentiles. So we're going to write them this letter. But what they do is they say, now, we're going to propose that they abstain from four idolatrous pagan practices. Things contaminated by idols is the first thing. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about this. Food was a major barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And the pagan temple was a source of meat. Animals killed for ritual sacrifices were then put into the temple butcher shop and sold, and the Jews would have issues with that. So don't do that. Stay away from that. Do this for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. You're in the same family of God. Stay away from fornication. Well, that's an easy one. Don't do sexual sin and make sure your marriages are pure because a lot of these Gentiles were coming from pagan temple worship where, where part of the worship of false gods was gross immorality, just unspeakable immorality. So they were instructed to separate themselves from the former way of life. Just like when you came to Christ and maybe you, 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 you know, engaged in all sorts of things that were unbiblical, you said, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be like I was before. And then avoid blood and avoid things strangled, upholding the sanctity of life, upholding the preciousness of life and the dietary restrictions. The idea was, Gentiles, don't misuse your freedom in Christ. You need to care about your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, that's what happened. And and they told them, we're in total agreement on this. We're in total agreement. The heretics are flying solo. We're in total agreement. They have troubled you. Now, in verse 24, they use the word troubled. It's a different word than verse 19. And it means to upset them deeply to deeply disturb them, to perplex them, even to create fear. Create fear that maybe you're not saved because you haven't done these things. Don't let anyone ever tell you that that salvation is is not by grace through faith in Christ. Believe that with all your heart. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what they're telling them. So they send the letter, they deliver it. They deliver the letter. And they, they read the letter and everyone's excited about the letter. Because it encouraged them. I've been saying so often that people don't get enough encouragement this encouraged the hearts of believers. It, it, it bolstered their, 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 you know, their, the discouragement that had come upon them because they were being told lies. And even Judas, Barsabbas, and, and Silas, um, who was Silvanus, by the way, uh, who, um, who was the scribe for Peter later on, and uh, they encouraged and strengthened all the believers. They told them many things to strengthen them with the word of God, and, and it counteracted the lies. Gave them like a big shot of biblical truth. 
and peace was restored. It preserved the unity of the, of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3. They deferred their own freedom for the good of the body of Christ. That's what we need to do. Defer our own freedom for the good of the body of Christ. And the church rejoiced because God is honored when Christians stand for gospel truth. We must stand for gospel truth together that people would rejoice in the gospel truth. And, and this is a reminder. If I say one thing about this passage, it is a reminder to every Christian in every age that the truth matters, that God's word stands forever, and you can bank everything on it, that you don't have to wonder and be afraid. We should remember the Jerusalem Council. You know, we remember certain dates, right? Anniversaries, birthdays, special occasions. Just this week, Angela and I had our 25th wedding anniversary on June 1st. We're remembering God's faithfulness to us and the the love he's given us for each other. Our 10th anniversary at Grace Church is coming up uh, July 29th. And in in case Jesus comes back or I die or you fire me, uh, I'll be here for 10 years. So that's a marker, right? Um, July 4th, the 240th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. That's a big one. We We celebrate that every year. But we should have this anniversary that we remember of of. The Jerusalem Council, that's an event that should encourage us in our lives as Christians, that should actually help us as we live our lives in Christ, because that's a battle to believe the Bible rather than our own thoughts, or rather than lies that we hear. That's why we need to be together and united. You know what the key qualification was for Barnabas and Paul to actually deliver this letter? It was, verse 26 tells us, it was that they risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had risked their lives. On their first journey, they faced persecution. Paul was nearly killed for it. We saw that. There are many Christians that have risked their lives to live and even to die for the truth. 600 years ago, July 6, 1415, John Huss, who was a Czech priest, was burned at the stake for heresy against the doctrines of the church. Why? Because he stood for the truth of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. After John Wycliffe, Huss is considered the first church reformer. He lived before Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, and his teachings had a strong influence on Western Europe. Over 100 years later, he influenced Martin Luther. 461 years ago, John Bradford, who was a preacher of the gospel, believed in justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and he continued to preach it even when Queen Mary Tudor told him not to, so she burned him at the stake. In fact, he was condemned to death and taken to Newgate Prison and burned at the stake July 1st, 1555, for the truth, for the gospel. John Fox described the death of John Bradford like this. He fell flat to the ground, making his prayers to Almighty God. Then rising, he went to the stake and there suffered joyfully and constantly. He was chained to the stake with a young man named John Leaf. And before the fire was lit, he begged forgiveness of anyone he had wronged and he forgave those who had mistreated him. And he turns to Leaf and he says, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. A century later, Thomas Fuller is writing, and he says that, that Bradford endured the flame as a fresh gale of wind in a hot summer's day, confirming by his death the truth of the doctrine he so diligently and powerfully preached 
during his life. You have to be convinced of the truth to live for it and die for it. God is honored when Christians unite for gospel truth. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have convinced us of the truth. Thank you that you have warned us in your word of the rise of false teaching and you have prepared us by teaching us the truth and you've given us your truth and your word and Lord, we want to be certain of the truth and that your word never changes and thank you, Lord, that our faith is from you and thank you, Lord, that your divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of you who called us by your own glory and excellence. And thank you, Lord, that you have granted to us your precious and magnificent promises. Thank you, Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. May the glory of Christ's name be our passion. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.